Uh, listen, we're in Ephesians 4 and John 17. Let me share a couple quick things with you guys. Um, you know that we've been doing this series called Real Talk, which is a biblical approach to tough conversations. Um, our hope in 2020, we went through Jonah, we went through Hebrews, we broke down those books, but our hope is to slow down and go, Lord, what is it you want to say to our church? What is it you want to say to us here in South Florida? And so we've kind of had some um, heavier topics, and, and I think it's been so necessary, so beautiful in our groups, in our community. Uh, we've looked at the, go- the gospel and grief. We talked about the gospel and honor, the gospel and race, the gospel and politics. Um, next week, we're doing the gospel and justice, and then the gospel and sexuality. Um, today, we're going to be looking at the gospel and unity, the gospel and unity. And I think this might be the most important message, because this kind of ties the whole series together. That as we get to different topics, different issues, from a biblical perspective, um, this is going to be the way that leads that conversation. Like, what is biblical unity? What does unity look like? How do we fight for unity? How do we do this? Um, what gets in the way of unity? And what does even unity mean now? That word can be thrown out so much. I think the word unity is even used. It's abused. I think it's, it's oftentimes leaders can use that word unity for selfish reasons and selfish gain, rather than saying, no, we really want to fight for unity from a gospel-centered perspective. And I think, again, that word has lost some meaning and lost some weight to it. And our hope is to look at the scriptures and find that redemptive value in that word, and that concept, and that idea in that biblical truth of unity. What does it look like? How do we fight for it? I must be honest, this is 2020. This is probably the most divided year of my life that I've ever seen on earth. Maybe, maybe you've seen other years. I have no idea that are more divided than this year. But there's been a lot of division, uh, a lot of separation. We've seen family members not talk to other family members because of different topics. We've seen a lot of past hurt and pain be brought up. There's a lot of division. And so right now, we live in a very divided world, and the church has to be undivided. I mean, that's the point. Everything's divided right now, but the church has to be undivided. I mean, we can't expect the world to have unity if the church doesn't have unity. So what is unity? How do we get it? What is it not? And this is what we want to do and break down today. And I'm excited because I just really do pray and hope that the Lord will make us a people that fights for this, that says the gospel of Jesus will go far above and beyond my personal preference and opinions. And that we would say, this is gonna, what's going to lead me, my framework in the conversation is everything we've been talking about. That this person's not my enemy, we have a real enemy. That this person might be grieving and I need to come at it with sympathy or empathy. But ultimately, I say, but how do we have unity? How do we still stand for truth, stand for conviction, but also fight for what's most important within the church? And that is the gospel of Jesus. So this is the gospel and unity. I'm excited for our text. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, but I'm going to primarily focus on verse 1 through 6, 1 through 8. Sound good? Sound like a plan? You guys ready? Everyone say amen. Come on, wake up. All right, here we go. Ephesians 4, uh, verse 1. Here we go. Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you, and in you all. Everyone say amen. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he, Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him. Who is the head? Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The hope today is for us to truly fulfill what his desire is, 
that we'd be unified in the faith and that we'd embrace what this looks like and how to carry this out into our daily lives. So I just want to pray. I would ask that you just pray with me, to invite the Lord here to speak, to move, that this would be more than a concept, more than an idea, more than something that we go, yeah, I agree with that, but that Jesus would truly make us a people that fight for unity. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of your word. Jesus, we thank you that you unified us, that you brought us together, that we truly have one Lord, one Spirit, one God and Father of all and in all. We thank you that we have one baptism. We thank you that we have this new identity in you. And and Jesus, I ask that though there be a lot of confusion right now uh, around just different topics or a lot of um, maybe abuse of this concept of unity even, Jesus, we just ask that you would truly give us a perspective of unity that is from you, and that, Lord, we learn how to do conflict well. We learn how to embrace all the things that we need to see real unity. And we ask this, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. You know, it seems as if when things are going, like, right in life, I mean, when there's peace, when there's unity, it seems like there's nothing more life-giving to the soul than when you see your family at peace, your work's at peace, I mean, your life's at peace. Like, there's nothing more beautiful than just experiencing and feeling harmony. At the same time, it seems like there's nothing more toxic to your soul than things when things aren't at peace, when there's disunity. It seems like there's nothing more like painful to be a part of than when you're just watching just something beautiful fall apart. You know, there's something incredible about being a part of something that's like harmonious, that you just see like love, you see people getting along, you see your kids, parents, you know, this is like when you see your kids doing this, there's just something so sweet and so beautiful about this. You know, I think this is why David said so famously in Psalm 133, verse 1, he says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. I mean, that's like a verse we know, maybe we've heard, but David, I think, experienced this. There's a lot of debate about when David said that or uh, what he was going through in his life. I mean, if anyone knew division, it was David. I mean, David was constantly at odds, it seems like, with everyone right? I mean, he's anointed king. The king in place, Saul, wants to kill him. Even David's household, his son starts a rebellion. David constantly saw division. It's believed that in Psalm 133, when David wrote this, it's probably early on in his career as being king. You know, the history of this is when David became king. Remember, David was from the tribe of Judah. King Saul before was from the tribe of Benjamin. And there's actually division between the 12 tribes, like the brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel were like at war with each other. And it wasn't for seven years, for seven years, David ruled out of a city called Hebron, not Jerusalem. He ruled from a different city for seven years until this war comes to an end and David unites the 12 tribes of Israel and finally the 12 tribes are back together. And that's when I imagine him writing this Psalm. He goes, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We're back together. Seven painful years of being at war and at odds with each other. And now he's ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. He goes, this is beautiful. This is sweet. Man, there is something about being a part of something that feels unifying that you almost feel unstoppable. I mean, again, husband and wives, you know this. When you're like together, you feel like, okay, nothing can come against. Like when you're unified, you feel this in your family, at work, and you go, oh my gosh, things are actually gelling. You almost feel this unstoppable force behind it. You know, actually, this reminds me of a verse in Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, uh, listen to what the author says here. Leviticus 26, verse 8, he says, five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Hey, this is under this topic of obeying God, trusting God. If you follow me, here's what will happen. He says, five of you, five of you, when you're together, when you're unified, we'll put a hundred to flight. And a hundred of you will put 10,000 to flight. He's like, when you're together, the nation of Israel, when you're together, watch what you can do. I mean, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. I truly believe that when we're unified, we go, this is the church is an in, immovable and unstoppable force, that the gates of hell cannot stop it. There's something about seeing unity within the church. You go, this is exactly what it should be. You see, where there is unity, there is strength. Where there is division, there is weakness. I mean, that's just a common concept. When there's unity, you feel like there's incredible strength. When there's division, there's incredible weakness. And so I believe there's this great call for us to truly see and fight for unity. This is something all of us have the call to do. Uh, One pastor said it this way, and listen to this. He said, it is your job, not just mine, He's talking to the common Christian. It is your job to protect the unity of your church. Unity in the church is so important that the New Testament gives more attention to it than to either heaven or hell. 
God deeply desires that we experience oneness and harmony with each other. Unity is the soul of fellowship. Destroy it, and you rip the heart out of Christ's body. It is the essence, the core of how God intends for us to experience life together in his church. Amen? I mean, you rip out unity. He says you rip out the soul, the heart and soul of the church. Now, let me just say this. This idea of unity is not some like kumbaya statement. Like, come on, guys, give me it all, just get along. It's not that. We know that when it comes to unity, there's going to be a lot of conflict, a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice. There's going to be a lot when it comes to unity. It's not easy. It's not going to come easy. And so we want to talk about what this is. And I get it. Like, as, as soon as you start talking about unity, it's not a hard sell. It's like, yeah, I think we should be unified. But what is it? But what is unity? And what is it not? And why does this matter so much? All right, so those are my points today. What unity is not, what it's not, what it is, and why it matters. All right? Unity. What it's not, what it is, and why it matters. First point. Uh, what it's not. What it, unity is not. Uh, here's the idea. Unity, as you know, commonly said, unity is not uniformity. And I'm so thankful for this. Unity is not uniformity. It's not sameness. Unity does not mean that we all dress the same, look the same, talk the same, act the same. It does not mean we all have the same interests, passions. Unity does not mean we, we all have, the, we share all those things in common. Okay, it's not sameness. It, it's more togetherness, but it's not sameness. I'm so thankful for this. That unity is not uniformity. I'm so thankful that 12 disciples all had 12 different personalities and there are 12 different people with different backgrounds and experiences. But I'm very thankful that unity is not uniformity. That's what we got to make sure we understand that. You know, uh, I, there's a lot of studies done on this about church. And the idea is when people walk into a church, here's the question they're asking themselves for the first time. Are there people like me here? A lot of times, and most studies will talk about this, what draws people to a specific church is, oh, I found people like me here. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, obviously, you want to find, you know, people that have similar interests. But that is usually the leading thought for people. So here's the reason why I think that's an issue. The idea is when someone walks into the church, whether they subconsciously say this or not, they're like, are there people like me here? People that joke like me, like the movies I like, talk like me. Why? Because I love me. I love me. I love who I am, and I love what I think, and I love what I do, and I want to find people like me because I love me. And there's something about this that you go, this isn't inherently wrong necessarily, but I've talked to some people who go, man, I've, you know, I've come here, and there's not a lot of people like me. And I go, that's such a good thing. Like, start a new trend. First of all, we need people not like each other because the church should look different. It should be different. Like, there should be a place where sometimes everyone has a sense of, like, I'm out of place here. Like, yes, that is like the beginning steps of, like, unity, where you, you go, not everyone's the same. Thank God for that. I'm so thankful for that. You know, early on when I was first church planting, I would meet with different leaders, and we'd talk to different people in the area and different pastors, and there's this question they'd always ask me. They'd say, Josiah, what's your demographic? And it was really hard, like, even the church planting books, and I'd, I'd, I'd hear that, and I get it. It's, like, it's a very businessy thing, and I'd have to, like, you know, they wanted a thorough process, like, who are you trying to reach? Who are you trying to reach? And it's hard for me because I, I know it's viewed as naive or shallow or childish. I'd be like, I know you're not going to like my answer, but I'm, I mean, my demographic is anyone who has a heartbeat. And they're like, oh, you can't say that. That's so narrow. That's so naive of you. And I'm like, no, I know. Like, but you understand, like, I don't want to start off and build our church with just one sort of person. Like, we can't. From the very inception of our church, it has to be different. Now, I, I get it. There will be different seasons and cycles and different things. But, like, I, our focus cannot be we want to reach this type of person in this way and it has to be done this. It's like, Jesus, help us. Help us to reach South Florida. We want our church to reflect our community. If our community we live in is diverse, the church better be diverse. I'm not saying every church, uh, listen, if you live in a homogenous area, your church will be homogenous. That's, that's fine. But it, we live in a very diverse culture, and we've got to understand that unity is not uniformity. And so when people have asked me, like, what's your demographic? I'm like, I, you're not going to like the answer. It's like, do you have a heartbeat? That's our demographic. It truly is. It's, we just want to reach people for Jesus. Amen? And the hope of this is to go, unity, unity is not going to be uniformity. If you've ever come here and found a place, I'd say, me too, welcome. You're, you're welcome here. We want everyone, all people, all different groups. So the idea is unity is not uniformity. We need to know what it's not. Now, here's what it's not. Unity is not something we create. Please listen to this. I'm so thankful for this biblical truth. I could never create unity. Unity is not something we create. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verse 3. Would you look down and read that with me? Ephesians 4, verse 3. What does Paul say? Verse 3, he says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice this first word, endeavoring. You're fighting to what? To keep the unity of the Spirit. This word keep depends on what translation you have, but in the Greek, it still says it's tereo. The idea is you and I are to endeavor to watch over to guard the unity. Its main usage is you and I are to maintain and preserve the unity. Hear that. My job and your job is to preserve unity, to maintain unity, not to create it. Um, and that is so freeing for me. 
I think for, for a while, it's like, I have to, I have to create unity. I, can't, I could never. Jesus already created unity. Jesus already made the unity. We are, there's united in this. My job is to fight for it, maintain it, preserve it, guard over it. That is your job as well. That the body is, is again, it's not something we create or like sew together. This is supposed to be like this natural, organic thing that like, you think about how we just grow, like in our mother's womb, just how we grow out of one thing. It's not like we sewed my hand on later and put my foot on later. It's like, Frankenstein does that. That's not the church. We're not the Frankenstein church, man. This is like an organic thing that just grows out of its members. This is a beautiful thing that God is doing. That it's, it's like all people groups, all, we talked about this last week, but we've talked about all people groups, tribes, tongues, nations coming together, and this is a beautiful thing that God is birthing and doing. And so listen, unity is not something we create, and that is incredibly freeing for me. But we must fight for it. We must preserve it. We must maintain it. Endeavor to keep it. Endeavor to keep it. You know, I mentioned this book last week, Oneness Embraced by Dr. Tony Evans. He said this, our failure to find cultural unity as a nation is directly related to the church's failure to preserve our spiritual unity. The church has already been given unity because we've been made part of the same family. An interesting point to note about family is that you don't have to get family to be family. Two big thoughts there, but he goes, the reason why socially we're seeing division the reason why socially and culturally there's so many people at odds is because, listen, there's a lack of unity there because there's a lack of the spiritual unity within the church. I think, man, let us start here in the house of God. You know, Galatians talks about this. Judgment begins in the house of God. There, there's a side of this that you go, man, it begins with us. Like, I could never, I would never expect unity from the world if we don't have it here. And if we don't have the hard conversations here, if we don't sit down and talk through things here, why would we ever expect it out there? Like, unity begins here in the church in the house of God. We must preserve it, maintain it, fight for it. I mean, this is family, man. You don't have to fight to be in family. You're just in it. I mean, you're in it. Now we just preserve it and, and make sure bad culture, bad ideas don't come in, but we must preserve and guard and watch over. But here's the big idea. When I'm talking about what unity is and isn't, here's what it's not. Now listen, this one's key to me. Biblical unity is not a lack of conflict, but a lack of division. Please hear that. Biblical unity, what it's not. It's not a lack of conflict, but it's a lack of division. There's going to be conflicts within the church. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in just a second. Let's look at the, the last half. There's going to be conflicts, but there better not be division. I mean, this is the theme throughout the New Testament. Paul's constantly calling out division and saying, you're going to have conflict, but don't have division. So the main verse, if you would write this down, take notes, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Here's what Paul says about this. He says, I plead with you. Listen, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no, say the word, there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, who is Peter, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is like, this pettiness is, it has to stop. There's arguments specifically in Chloe's household, which he calls out by name. And Paul's just familiar with, you know, doing this. He, he loved to, like, call out people by name. So I wrote down some names today to call. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Paul goes, listen, there's a vision. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm, a, I'm of Cephas. I'm of Peter. And then there's, like, I'm of Christ. I just picture that today because people are like, well, I'm on this side. I'm on this side. I'm on Christ's side. And, like, the super spiritual answer. Anyways, I just imagine this, like, debate going on. And Paul's going, this pettiness has to stop. These divisions among you. There better be no, division, no divisions, divisions among you. The point is, again, biblical unity is not a lack of conflict, but it is a lack of division. So there, there's this, this constant this thread in scriptures of watch out for those who, who cause division or dissensions. Uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 17 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. I, I, I urge you that those who are trying to cause dissensions, those who are trying to preach a gospel contrary to the gospel, I'm warning you, look out for them. Watch out, be aware of those people. Actually, Paul was writing to a bunch of pastors and elders, and in Titus chapter 3 verse 10 said this, he says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. He writes to elders and pastors saying, listen, you, you admonish a guy who's causing division once or twice. After that, reject him. Reject a divisive man. This is one of those harder things for me to hear. This is one of the harder things that we've had to walk through in ministry. You go, you're causing division. This is not okay. This has to stop. You're causing division. This is not okay. It must stop. Okay, you, you don't have fellowship here. That the Bible talks about division very seriously. 
Actually, if you've heard of the seven deadly sins, which I think have been just misunderstood what they are, but in Proverbs 6, it says, these six things God hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. The last one was this in Proverbs 6, verse 19. It says, one who sows discord among the brethren. One who sows discord. One who, think about sowing seeds. You're sowing something small, so it might grow into something big. He goes, one what God hates, those who go around sowing these small seeds of discord among the brethren. As Jesus would say, it's a little leaven that leavens the whole lump. Hey, Pharisees, the self-righteous religious community coming into the church, sowing their self-righteous seeds, and he says that's going to spread quickly. And there's division, because division can come in many ways and forms. And listen, the church is not a lack of conflict, but it is a lack of division. That's what it should be. There should be no divisions, no dissensions, rejected, divisive person. This language is incredibly strong. Actually, Paul in 1 Corinthians was constantly going back to the divisions. And he says to them in 1 Corinthians 3, I won't read all of it, but he basically says, I wanted to write to you as mature believers, but you are babes in Christ. Not like babes, but like your babies. You're, you're babies in Christ, man. He's like, you think you're spiritually mature, but you're spiritually immature. Listen, divisiveness is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Let me just be really clear. Your spiritual maturity is not based off how much you know the Bible, how many verses you have memorized, how many books you read, how many theologians you know. That's not my spiritual maturity. It cannot be based off that. He goes, your spiritual maturity is based off your healthy relationships. Can you maintain and establish healthy relationships? Are, are you about this? We got to see that this is what our spiritual maturity is based off of. How do we do conflicts? How do we do issues and topics? You might think you're spiritually mature, but when it comes to conflict resolution, you might be a babe in Christ. He's like, no more sin. I'm a Paul. I'm a Peter. Yo, I'm a team Apollos. He's like, not here. We're not going to hide behind that. We're not going to deal with these petty things. We're going to approach, we're going to approach it with healthy conflicts. So let's just talk about conflict for a second. Listen, conflict is okay. We got to understand that. If you're married, you get that. You're going to have conflicts. I mean, you can get that. So many forms of conflict are not bad. Like conflict can be a really, really good thing. It's not division, it's conflict where there's, there's a goal. You're, you're seeking reconciliation, you're seeking understanding. And there's so many things when it comes to conflict that we fall into the trap of. I think when it comes to conflict, there's two main ways we approach it. Um, we either avoid conflict or we amplify conflicts. I almost want to be like, where are my avoiders at? But don't raise your hand. But we have like avoiders of conflicts and we have amplifiers of conflicts. I mean, we, uh, let's just start with the first one, avoiders. When it comes to avoiding conflict, it's like, oh, there's conflict, I'm out of there. Like we live in such a weird time, right? Where you go, if there's conflict at my work, I'll just get a new job. There's conflicts with my friends, I'll get new friends, there's a lot of people out there. There's conflict in my marriage, people leave their marriage. There's conflict in their church, people leave their church. And they go, I don't like this, I don't like this feeling, I don't like conflicts. And it's almost like we'll spend it, we'll, we'll do, go take whatever, we'll, we'll do whatever it takes to just avoid conflict, to get out of conflict. I mean, it's funny, I've talked to people in the past, they go, oh, I really like, appreciate this, I appreciate this church, I love your church. And my last church, I didn't really like it because blah, blah, blah. I'm like, let me just stop you there. Because a lot of times I hear that and I go, that's like a warning. You got to understand that's a warning sign to me. I go, is there unresolved conflict? Is there someone you need to go back to and apologize? Is there unconfessed sin? Is there something you need to work through? Like I get there's a lot of reasons why people might leave a church, but those reasons probably should be a lot more narrow than we think. The point he's saying is, um, listen, we must fight. We must fight for unity. And that means we're going to be really good at conflict resolution. And it's not okay just to avoid it. I would say this. If you're avoiding conflict right now in your life, please identify who that person is. And this is a great week to schedule coffee with him. This is a great week to say, I want to take you, I want to, take you to lunch, man. There's been, I saw what you post. It was very offensive to me. Just call it out. Talk to them. I would say this is a great way for us to truly say, you know, I'm going to have face-to-face -face meeting with so-and-so. Listen, if someone says, I would like to meet with you face-to-face, -face, don't, don't be, no, no. Like, take advantage of that. Do that. Like, we must, we must seek reconciliation. Or there's avoiders. Or obviously there's amplifiers. And there are people who, like, love conflicts, right? And they're like, oh, we're going to meet for coffee? I have 25 points I want to share with you. <laughs> and you're like, oh, right? There, and there's a point where, like, you just want to win the argument rather than win the person and, and truly find reconciliation with the person and truly find healing and common ground with the person. We don't want to be that end, too. So obviously we want to look at, like, how do we do this and how do we do conflict? And obviously that is a topic we've done in the past. I'd encourage you to go back to and listen. I think it's in Mark's gospel on how to do conflict. But my thing is we want to be those who seek out reconciliation, seek out common ground, seek out understanding. I'm not trying to win the argument as much as win you. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. Or even if they're not a Christian, I don't want to, I don't want to win opinion. I want to win you to Jesus. And so there's this idea of we just want to win people for the sake of the gospel. So here's why I'm saying that. In the church, there's going to be a lot of different uh, uh, disagreements on different topics. Like a lot of different topics, a lot of different disagreements. I get that. Maybe you remember the famous quote by St. Augustine. He supposedly said this, but it's, either way, it's a good quote. He says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. And we'll talk about essentials. Like we're going to be, we are going to be united around the essentials of Jesus. We'll talk about what that is. And he goes, in non-essentials, man, there's liberty there. There's freedom there. 
If it's not essential to the gospel of Jesus, or it's not essential to salvation, or someone's eternal life, you know what? There's liberty there. And in all things, there has to be charity, or grace, or love. Now, uh, one pastor, his name is Gary Bershire, he put together things that Christians, uh, kind of how we handle conflict, or things we divide over. We'll put these up here. He talks about it four ways. He says, there are things you die for, things you, you divide for, things you debate for, and things you decide for. So let's just talk through this. Things you, things you die for. I think this is very true. There are certain things when it comes to the gospel I would literally die for, and that you as followers of Jesus would literally die for. If someone says, is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Is he sinless? Did he die on the cross for your sins in, in a sense of exchange or propitiation to cover your sins, pay for your sins? Did he rise again from the grave? Do you believe this? Absolutely, I do. The virgin birth? Absolutely. There are certain things I'm not going to budge on when it comes to the gospel. If there was, honestly, a gun held to your head that says, do you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again? You say, yes, I would die for that. Yes, I would die for that truth. There are things we're going to die for, truly die for, right? Then there's things we got to divide over. And let me just preface it with this. This is probably a lot less than you think it is. So when it comes to some other topics, you go, man, maybe, maybe one is you go, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and I believe they're incredibly relevant to the church today, and we need the power of the Spirit. We don't want to do things in our strength. And so I don't believe that gifts of the Spirit die with the apostles, and I believe that is. And there's others who say, no, I, I do believe it ended with the apostles. And maybe at that point in time, maybe, maybe, maybe there can't be, in a sense, unity there. Maybe you need a fellowship somewhere else. But I would even challenge you then that uh, sensationists, those who believe the gifts stop, and those who believe that continuous, those who believe the gifts are still going, I would say they definitely could still do church together. Maybe this is one where you go, man, I believe in the literal, inerrant, infallible word of God, every word, everything. And someone says, well, isn't there like a time period thing off here? Like, is it really inerrant? And I would say, maybe those are things you divide for, but even then, this is so, so rare. I would say next is this, things you debate for. I'd say this is most everything <laughs> for the most part. Like at end times, we'd say we have a take on it as a church, but hey, if you have a different take, welcome, we love you. I would say we debate, we discuss that over groups. We discuss that in life. Uh, debate, I really mean discuss, but this is like a healthy dialogue about this. And I know we disagree, but guess what? You're my brother and I'm a student in heaven anyways. Like there's a side where you like debate, that you debate over. And then the other things you just decide for. Can I eat meat? Can I not eat meat? Can I, all these different little things the Bible does address. I'd say you decide that. You figure that out. My point is this, and this is the author's actual point, but he, he talks about this a lot more. He says, stop driving everything up to the first two. You see, when it comes to things I'll die for, yeah, we went over that. The gospel of Jesus will not alter, will not change. He was sinless. He's the son of God, born of a virgin. He, he lived a perfect sinless life, took my place, took my sin, died and rose again. He ascended into heaven. He never, to never die again. He's at the right hand of the Father. Man, I would die over those truths. But a lot of times we try to push everything up to divide for where you want to make it such an issue. It's like, well, you don't believe this? I'm leaving. And, and this is where the Bible, I think, was challenged that. They're very, very rare moments. It is usually extreme moral sin, like 1 Corinthians 5. Someone who's in unrepentant sexual sin gets called out and says, I can still follow Jesus and do whatever I want sexually. And the Bible speaks into that. I mean, there are times where it's someone who's very divisive, but the Bible is very limited on when to divide. My thing is we live in such a, an easy culture. We go, conflicts? I'm out of this relationship, I'm out of this job, I'm out of this church. And I'd say, don't run, but press into it, church. Amen? Like, we need to press into it. When it comes to unity, there's going to be conflicts. There's going to be, it's just, it's just going to happen. And you must live it out in community, walk it out, talk it out, explore it, have many conversations, have people hold you accountable. This is going to be something we're going to fight for. Amen? Now, that's what it's not. It's not a lack of division. Uh, it's not a lack of conflict. It's a lack of division. Number two is this. Uh, what is it then? So what it is? What is uh, unity? What is unity? Like, what does this look like then? Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. This is what unity is. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. Would you look down and read it with me? The author says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There are seven different ones here. He's just going, man, look at what you have in common. One Lord, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. You have so much more in common than what might divide you. Like we have to understand this as a church. We share the most important things in life together. We are one baptism. I love baptism. We did one a couple weeks ago, but I love it because I think about 2,000 years of church history, people being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, saying, welcome to this family. I, we participate in this ancient practice of baptism. It's beautiful. So beautiful. We have so much more in common than what, we, than what divides us or might separate us. So what is unity? Let me say this this way. Unity is centered on Jesus Unity is centered around Jesus, one spirit, one Lord, one Father. It's this actually Trinitarian more of approach of we have the same God, 
We worship one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we have this theocentric unity versus an anthropocentric unity. I'm not just trying to use big terms. Please listen to this. Theocentric unity means we are theocentric. Theocentric. We are a unity centered around God. When most of every single culture, every single people group outside of scriptures is anthropocentric, it's centered on, on man on man's creativity, man's ideas, man's interests, man's opinions. And the church is saying, no, we're not going to be anthropocentric. We're not going to be centered around us and what we like, our interests, our vow. We're going to be theocentric, centered around God. We have that in common, that you and I are centered on and around Jesus. And there's just something when the church does get together where you go, this feels like an unstoppable force. I mean, guys, we have the same common vision for what life will be. Just earth ruling and reigning under the, the Jesus. We have the same purpose and goal to make disciples of all nations. I mean, we have the most important things in life in common. Again, Tony Evans in that book, Oneness Embrace, went on to say this. He says, unity can be defined in its simplest of terms as oneness of purpose. It is working together in harmony toward a shared vision and goal. Oneness of purpose, a shared vision and shared goal. You see, we see people all the time thinking about this who come around something, they're unified around the wrong thing. And so there's still a lot of power there but they're unified on and around the wrong thing. You know, think about this in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, think about the flood. The flood's over. The people are getting together. They're in the, the land of Shinar. It's this area in the Mesopotamia, and they want to build a tower. They want to make themselves a great name. And so they start building and building and building. There was one language at that time. And it says in Genesis chapter 11, verse 6, the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. God comes down and says, wow, look it. When they are centered around one common purpose and one common goal, there's nothing that will be withheld from them. Like, there's power there. There's power when everyone is centered around one thing. But if you remember the story in Genesis 11, God recognizes their ego, their pride. They want to be like God. They want to see God. They, it's just a lot of it was ego-based. So God, what did he do? He separated them. He scattered them. And it says he gave them different languages. So we see one people, one language become many languages. And then this story, I want you to compare it to Acts 2. Because in the book of Acts, chapter 2, Jesus died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and it says the disciples were together in one place, in one accord. And if you remember, in Acts 2, verse 4, listen to this. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 6 says, and everyone there heard them speak in his own language. Let me just kind of give you the context. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, upon the early church. Remember, there's a big Jewish feast called Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost was happening. There are people out there celebrating. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Everyone starts speaking in a different tongue, but the people in the crowd and the audience that came from all parts of the globe to celebrate this festival, they're hearing the gospel preached in their own language. Many people, 3,000 people, were saved that day. And here's what I love about the story. In Genesis 11, you have one people around one thing. God divides them because in different tongues. But here, essentially in Acts 2, there's different tongues, but it's all for one message. It's all the gospel. There's division in Genesis 11, and then God's bringing all these tongues together for one purpose, one goal. That's the salvation of people. And my point is this. Man, there really was power in Genesis 11. So much so that God says, we've got to scatter them and give them different tongues. And listen, when the church was together in one accord, in one place, there was a lot of power resting on them as well. And my thing is, first of all, we have a Holy Spirit-filled power, not just a man-centered you know, power. We have God the Spirit resting upon us. My hope for us as the church is going, what could happen if we were in one place in one accord and we were seeking the Holy Spirit? Like, what could really happen? What if our church truly says what unifies us is way greater than what divides us? What if we had a, a bunch of people, even if they had different backgrounds, ethnicities, races, political bends, all these differences, but you said, but the gospel of Jesus unites us together. What could the Holy Spirit do? This would be such a powerful thing to me. This is when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Church, I want to say this. Please fight for oneness. Please fight for this. Please fight for unity. Please realize that when the church is together in one place, in one accord, when you see the gospel of Jesus is central to everything we do, we're a community centered on Jesus and around Jesus and for Jesus. When we realize that, we go, and that's when the Spirit, I believe, can go, like, let me fill the church. Let me use the church. Let me empower the church. There's something incredibly incredible that happens here. So listen, unity is centered on Jesus. Amen? Now let me say this one. This one, I'm I was trying to figure out how to like word it, but unity implies diversity, or unity in diversity, or there's many ways you could say this, but unity implies diversity, meaning um, if you're going to be unified, you have to be unified with different. Like people that are different, everything, differences. Meaning it's easy to be unified alone. If I'm just like, yo, me and my family, like, or these people who all think like me, look like me, talk like me, we all get along. That's not unity. Like we said, that's uniformity. But unity is this idea that there's going to be incredible diversity. 
incredible diversity of gifts, of people, of experiences, of the body. It just implies there has to be, what, what's being unified? Diversity is being unified. And here's, here's the idea. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. There's this phrase, it's, he says this, in Ephesians 4, verse 8, he gave gifts to men. So we're like, what is the big idea of that? Think about this. He says one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one, 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 one. He gave gifts to men. And there's diversity. And it says he gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. What are those gifts? You could read Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, uh, 1 Peter 4. You see this idea of gifts or offices or the variety of gifts of the Spirit. But here's the idea. Before there was diversity being communicated in this passage, there's unity. There's unity that led to diversity. There's unity that brought diversity. There's unity that implied diversity. God, Jesus, gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. Paul, like, what are you saying, Josiah? Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. Listen to this verse. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 6, it says, There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. There are a variety of gifts, same Lord. There are varieties of activities, same Spirit. The, the idea is there's unity and there's diversity. There's unity and there's variety. And unity always implies there's variety. And again, I'm just so thankful when I look around. There's so many people here with different gifts and talents and abilities and experiences. You know, like my wife makes fun of me because I can't like build anything or do anything. And she's like, I'm just so thankful for this person in our church. She's so good at building. I'm like, me too. Um, but I'm just so thankful for that diversity within the church. I'm so thankful for diversity of gifts, man. That you, some of you have just a great giant heart for hospitality and the gift of hospitality. Some of you just have the gift of exhortation. Some of you have the gift of service. So you have that prophetic word, that word of wisdom, that word of knowledge. I mean, I've seen that. I've experienced that. I mean, I'm just so thankful that we have within a church that's united, we're also very diverse in our activities, ministries, giftings. Absolutely, we need that. I mean, this is the whole point. Unity implies diversity. It, unity in diversity, it's just going to have that. You're going to be unified, not with yourself, but with others. And it's going to be diverse in a variety. And thank you, Jesus, for that truth, how we need that. Now, listen, here's my last thought under this point. How do we fight for unity? Because this is so key. How do we fight for this? So here's what it's not. It's not uniformity. It's not a lack of conflict, but of division. Here's what it is. It's, it's diversity of gifts. It's centered on Jesus. But how do we fight for it, church? So how do we fight for it? I want to give you a little verse to kind of uh, preface the rest of what I'm about to say. But there's a verse in Song of Solomon, and here's what it says. Uh, he's, right, he's saying this to his bride. He says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards. Like, okay, what is that? I love this thought. This is basically, Song of Solomon is essentially erotic poetry. That's what it is. It's a husband and wife just saying beautiful things, kind things to each other and loving things and sexual things to each other. Anyways, he says, hey, honey, catch the foxes before the, the vineyard is spoiled. Like, what is that? The idea is this. It's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard it's the little foxes that spoil the harvest. He's saying, honey, it's the little things that spoil something beautiful God's doing. My wife and I use this verse, like, hey, it's the little foxes. Anyways, you'll probably lose that later. But the idea of church, think about this for us. When it comes to unity, it is the little foxes that spoil the harvest. It's when it comes to unity and when it comes to division, it's those little things that come in that spoil something beautiful God's doing. It's usually not some big meteor that takes out the harvest. It's not some big thing. It's usually just a little fox got in and just tore apart our vineyard. And when it comes to the church, a lot of times in the division, it's just a little thought, little comment, little negative attitude that comes in and causes a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of division. A lack of care, a lack of being compassionate, but it's usually something small and you're like, where's this division coming from? And we're trying to find big things, but it's usually a little fox. And I think we've seen this in so many ways in so many relationships. So here's a couple thoughts I want to leave with you when it comes to how to fight for unity. Um, here is the first one that we see throughout scriptures. And I'll clarify what it means in a second, but here's the first one. Have the same mind. Have one mind. What does that even mean? But we'll talk about that. The Bible constantly keeps saying, have one mind, have the same mind, have one mind, have the same mind. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 11 says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, be of one mind, live in peace. This is how you fight for unity, be of one mind. It's Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Over and over again. How do, you, how do you do this? Be of one mind. Be of one accord. Be of the same mind. I mean, whenever the Bible talks about division and unity, it has this constant phrase. You'll see, be of one mind. Philippians 4, again, verse 2. Paul says, I beg Eodia and I implore Synteche to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's division in this church. Again, Paul called them out by name. Hey, Eodia, Synteche, 
hey, be of the same mind. And he tells the people around them, help these women get along in the gospel. My point is, there's constant division in the church, and there's this constant reminder of saying, but be of the same mind. Have one mind. Okay, you're like, what is that? What does that even mean? Uh, D.A. Carson, one of the greatest thinkers of our day in Christianity, said this. In other words, Paul is appealing for a mental attitude that adopts the same basic direction as other believers. The same fundamental aim, the same orientation and priorities, that is a gospel orientation. If you haven't gotten the point yet today, um, the gospel. How do we have the same mind? The gospel. What are we fighting for? The gospel. Do I lead with my opinions or the gospel? The gospel. Like, this is the, the idea of having the same mind of one accord, just the, the story of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, how he loved, how he served, how he forgave, how he spoke truth and called people out. We want to carry out this gospel message. We want to say the gospel of Jesus must go forth, his death, his resurrection, his life, what he's done for us. We're going to say, we're going to put this above our own opinions. And I know that is hard, but we're going to say, my opinion will come secondary to the gospel. We have the same goal, the same orientation, the same hope, the same call. The gospel of Jesus must be our priority. Because the church, I think, has, I think, this, I think Satan is so incredibly happy when he sees us getting caught up in secondary tier issues and battles that, though we're important and though need to be discussed, are not the gospel. That the go- if we could spend more time eva- evangelizing the gospel of Jesus than we do sharing our own opinions, I think, man, the world would be evangelized too. Like, imagine we go, man, we're just going to put all of our time and energy and money, everything's going to double down on the gospel. Even though I have certain bends and preferences, that's okay. That's okay. That is. God's given you different vocations, jobs, passions. Pursue those. Do those. But even then, it's the second to the gospel. Like, whatever gifting or calling or vocation God's given you, you're bringing the gospel. You have this gospel filter, this gospel lens. Everything is through that lens. This is the same mind. This is that one accord. This is what he's talking about here. So that's the first thing, is have one mind. How else do I fight for this? Can I say this? Here's how you fight for unity. It's pretty simple. It's like what I tell my kids. But avoid a bad attitude and complaining. All right? When it comes to unity, avoid complaining. Do all things without complaining and disputing so that you may become blameless and harmless children of God. Let me just say this. Like, there, there's something so incredibly powerful about someone who speaks life, someone who speaks truth and peace versus someone who complains. You know, it's a little nagging, it's a little comments, it's a little criticalness. It's just, you're constantly being cynical. It's almost like you don't believe Jesus died and rose again because everything's cynical, everything's terrible, everything's falling apart. And it's like, listen, um, Last time we saw a group of people complain this much, God's like, I'm going to send fiery serpents to bite you. My, my, my point is that complaining, we might think it's not a big issue, but it's, it's those little foxes that spoil the harvest. It's a little attitude. It's, it's a little like, where did that come from? What's that stemming from? What are you feeling? Is there bitterness there that's unresolved? Is there unforgiveness that's unresolved? Do you need to seek out to forgive someone? Do you need, to, do you, do you need forgiveness yourself? Like, what is that? But say, avoid at all costs this bitterness, this complaining. I'd also say this, this is random, but how to fight for unity. Do everything with excellence or just don't do it at all. Meaning Ecclesiastes 9 says, um, whatever you do, do it, do it with all of your might. First Corinthians 9 says, do all for the glory of God. My, my point is, don't do something for Jesus if it's going to be just half-hearted. If it's going to be something where you go, I just, I'll, just, I'll show up when I want to show up. I'll come and do what I want to do. Like, that's not, that's not any way to build unity. It's going to cause division and frustration and anger and angst between people, between teams. I would say, fight. Fight to do it for Jesus. Do it well. And here's the last thought. Listen, when it comes to fighting for unity, be present. Be here. Be here. And, and here's why. Um, I know, and listen, I get this. I'm so thankful that we live in an age where we can do live stream services. That's crazy. I know there's many people that can't be here because of health risks, and I get that, or because of their job or different reasons, and I get that. But I've also been talking and been seeing and been watching and observing and talking with other pastors and leaders in the community, and there's this common theme. For six months, we got conditioned to just kind of roll out of bed and turn on the TV, and I'd say, fight to be here. I would say, oh, it's raining outside. I guess I'll just watch online. Like, no, like, fight to be here. Like, I would say, when it comes to unity, how can we be unified if we're not together? We have to physically, by proximity, be close to each other. And this is not just like me to harp on you, like, how dare you miss? I get it. Things happen, things come up. But to the extent that we're seen, and I'm getting calls from like random places all over the globe about like, why are churches declining? I'm like, why is, and so I'm like, okay, this must be happening everywhere. This, I'm getting emails sent this, like, this must be going on everywhere. And what a time, if you can, in safety and do it well, I'd say, come be present. That's one great way to fight for unity. If you can't, there's grace, obviously. And there's a moment where we understand people's pain. They cannot be here, and we love you, and we're thankful for this moment that we're able to watch live in this way. But fight to be present, whether that's physically, mentally, socially, just be present. So now, here's my last thing. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why does it matter so much? Why does unity matter? Like, come on, Josiah. Like, does it really matter? Like, once in a while, I can just live up my faith kind of how I want, when I want. Why does this matter so much? I would say, please turn to John 17. I just want to read the heart of Jesus of why this matters. John chapter 17, if you would turn there. 
John 17, and I like to do this. Humor me again by turning your Bible, making that noise. I just love that sound of papers turning. Or click that, you know, app. I don't know. <laughs> why it matters. Here's why it matters. John chapter 17, verse 20. All right, John 17, verse 20. Here's what Jesus says. He's praying right before he's about to be taken to be crucified. His last prayer to the Father before the cross. He says, Father, I do not pray for these alone. Who's that? The disciples that are with him, that are in the garden with him at that moment, at that time. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That Jesus prayed for you, for me. Here's his prayer. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, and, and that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I mean, you can't avoid it. There's just so much one, that they may be one, that they're one with us, we're one with them, that they may be one. There's this constant idea of our unity, our basis and model of unity comes essentially from the Trinity. Within the Godhead, there's perfect love, diversity of roles, Diversity of, of, you could say, of gifts of that role within the Trinity. Uh, here's a few things. We see that within the unity of the Trinity, it's not just the basis for our unity or fellowship, it's the model of it. So they have the same goal, they had complementary and diverse roles and a great love for one another. Here, here's the idea with unity. We are to model the Trinity. Seriously, think about this. Within the Trinity, uh, you see this idea of they have the same goal. Glorify the Son, John 17, verse 1. I want to glorify you, Father. You've glorified me, I want to glorify you. We see this same goal. We see within the Trinity this love. You have loved them as you have loved me. First of all, you know that the God the Father loves you the way he loves his son. That's unbelievable. But there's this perfect love within the Trinity. There's a diversity of roles that God the Father is just the author, the creator. Jesus is the one who accomplishes his will. The Spirit is the one who applies that to our lives. There's this perfect unity and diversity within the Trinity itself. And the whole idea, Jesus is bringing this up saying, God, I want the church to be like that. I, I pray that they be one as we're one. Because the, the whole idea for you and I, why this matters so much, is it ultimately, as Jesus said, it's a reflection of God's glory to the world. Ultimately, why unity matters so much is this is probably the greatest unspoken ways you and I can evangelize. One of the best ways, according to Jesus in John 17, and you can you read it, that the world may believe that you sent me. Why does he want us to be one? That the world might believe that God the Father sent Jesus. He's saying, man, the greatest unspoken way you and I can evangelize is by being united. It's crazy to think that you and I being united, have the same mind, same common goal, same purpose, same mission, all of that. That can be the greatest example to the world. Like, yes, what if right now the world just sees chaos amongst themselves, but they look in the church and they see this great unity. They see this great love and they look and they say, wait, you guys don't look alike, talk alike, have the same interests, but yet you all love each other, serve each other. You even vote differently and love each other. How is that possible? That's not possible in the world. We go, yeah, it's possible in Jesus. This is the one place you could truly see unity expressed in the midst of diversity. I think the world would never know unity if it wasn't for the church of Jesus. But I think we, we can miss it. This is an opportunity th for us to say, I'm not going to settle for social media comments, that quick little response. I'm not going to settle for posting my thoughts and opinions really quick and knowing it's going to offend half the church and I'm going to love it. I'm going to say, how about we just were to go, I'm going to love and serve and meet people face to face and say, help me understand your perspective because I truly don't see it that way, but I want to understand your experience and where you're coming from and I want to listen. Oh, you want to hear mine? Thank you. But that's even my goal today is just to listen to you actually. I was, what if we actually approached it in that way? And if the world says, wait a second, when I walk into the church, I see everyone raising hands to the same one, Lord, one God, one spirit. I see everyone doing the same thing, like in the same way, like they're worshiping the same person. How is that possible? And we go, the cross of Jesus. I mean, you go, that's it. I mean, that's the only reason why. Only he could take so many different people, so many different backgrounds and say, but we're united in him. Father, I pray that they'd be one. Jesus prayed for the church. Jesus prayed for the, the exchange. Not just those who believe me, but those who will believe in me. Jesus prayed for us that we'd be one. This is the prayer of Jesus. So when we're not one, what are we doing? We're going against the prayer of Jesus. I'm just saying there's something incredible about the prayer of Jesus saying that you would be one. Church, here's what we're going to do. And one of the best practical expressions of being one is communion. So we're going to take communion. Let me explain it. Don't get dis distracted yet. Don't move around yet. When communion is so interesting about, in Jewish tradition, someone sitting down at the table from you, eating from the same bread. The reason why they a lot of times wouldn't eat with Gentiles in that time and frame is we're eating the same source, the same food, and it's going into my body and your body, and that makes me one with you. So they're very particular about who they ate with. Here's the idea with communion. We have the same source. 
Jesus is the bread of life. We have this, the, 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 the drink, the cup, that his blood was shed for our forgiveness of sins. And we're saying, listen, we have the same faith, same Lord, same communion, same baptism, same family. And so we're going to take communion. Now, listen, you already have communion. And let me just say this. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you got communion and you don't want to take it, don't take it. If you've never believed in Jesus, do not take communion. But I'd say if you love, believe in Jesus, or you hear this and you go, I want to be one. I want to worship the same Lord, same God. I want to be part of this family. Please take it. Let me just say this. We want to remember this oneness we have in Christ. So I want to give you guys some time to pray, to slow down. And I want to ask you guys some questions really quick. So we're going to worship, but I want to just do something in a, for just a second. There are some questions an author asked. And I want to ask you guys this question. And when it comes to communion, when it comes to unity, here's something I think worth taking in. Is there any area in your life right now where you could be bringing disunity to the church? So is there any area in your life where you go, Jesus, there's an attitude, an unconfessed sin, pride, bitterness, unforgiveness. Is there something right now that could be causing division between you and someone else within the body of Christ? And I'd say communion is that time to say, Lord, search me, Lord, know me. Communion is that time to say, Jesus, you made me one with them. Jesus, right now, I forgive them in my heart. I forgive them. And then seek that after this. Like, call them, meet with them, get coffee with them, schedule it with them. I think communion is one of the greatest expressions of this unity and this oneness we have in Christ. And so we all get to, to eat and drink from the same source. And we remember Jesus. We remember Jesus who gave up his body so you and I could live, who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we're going to take communion. I just want to give you guys some time to pray over, to thank him. Because this is a time to, for us to always remember, Jesus, we would never know unity if it wasn't for the cross. We'd never know unity if it wasn't for your body and your garments being divided up. We would never know unity if it wasn't for you being torn apart so we could be brought together and made one. What a beautiful expression we have. What a beautiful reminder we have in communion to remember this oneness, this unity we have in Christ. So grab your cup, the little crackers at the top of it, in the top of it. I would just say, listen, pray over this communion. Take some time, thank him, praise him, confess sin, Ask if there's anyone in your life you need to forgive or you need to seek out forgiveness from. And just invite the Spirit to speak to you, to move in you. Remember, we're the same Lord, same God, same faith, same baptism. Spend some time in prayer. When you're done praying, I'm going to have some just closing thoughts. But let's take communion and remember our Lord.